All right, let's get started. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can flip to Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we'll be tonight. We're going to look at the whole chapter this evening, Hebrews 3. Continuing the Hebrews... Uh, outside the camp series. Go get my notes here ready. All right, Hebrews chapter three. Let's go ahead and read that. I'll pray and we'll uh, get right to work. Hebrews three, verse one. These are the words of God. Therefore, holy brethren. Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just as much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, note this verse, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness." where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they, also, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses... And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we have gathered here tonight to bring you glory and you alone. Uh, Our desire is not that uh, you would bow before us and our plans, but rather that we would bow before you and do what it is you desire. We are your servants. You are the builder. Help us to have ears to hear. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. 500 years ago, men like Pierre Verret, Martin Luther, William Farrell, and John Calvin led the charge for the cause of what we call the Protestant Reformation. This was a time of renewal as people repented of their idolatrous faith in the Roman Catholic Church 
and embraced the gospel afresh, their testimony is most assuredly worthy of our attention. Sadly, however, there was, uh, there was another European movement that rode on the coattails of the Reformers, a movement led um, by men like René Descartes, Spinoza, John Locke, and even David Hume. Um, this movement of ideas, called the Enlightenment, was an attempt to explain the world apart from God. These men desired to find an epistemological foundation, that's a big word for our um, knowing how we know things. They wanted a foundation of knowledge that rested on man and not God. When it came to knowledge and reason and thinking, how, how we know that we know that we know things, these rationalists and um, empiricists they long to have experience, and thus not God, as the foundation. So it, truth becomes relative, all these other things kind of spill over. When you have a presupposition that says, you know, knowledge and reason and understanding and even confirmation of that is not founded or rooted in God, but it's rooted in ourselves and our experience. That's relativistic thinking. So one's own thinking, one's own presuppositions, one's own experience and rationale served as the foundation for this world and life view. Now, the ironic thing about the Enlightenment is that it wasn't at all that enlightening. For all the brilliant ideas that were shared and, and all the captive audiences that these men were able to gain, their rejection of God became utter foolishness. And why is that? Why is it? foolish to try and do this stuff without God? Well, the answer is very simple, and I want you to note it in verse 4. The answer is because the builder of all things is God. The builder of all things is God. You can't borrow from the Christian world and life view, create a foundation, build on its presuppositions and assumptions, and then call it something else, slapping another label on it or what have you. So the, the men like Hume and Locke, who did influence the Founding Fathers, mind you, but that's a different issue, um, these men, they thought that they were doing something very helpful. As it turns out, they were building their own philosophical graves. Now, I bring all of this up here because it has a lot to do with the text before us, and it has a lot to do with how I intend to apply the text, especially as we consider our current cultural quandary, and, and how much of what we see happening around us today is the same old Enlightenment garbage rehashed and repackaged. So let's consider our text, walk through it, and then we'll, we'll just make some observations. We learn in verse 1 that in light of all that came before, that's the word therefore, in light of Christ being transcendent and imminent, in light of Christ being the Son of God and greater than the angels, indeed he is the great mediator, in light of all that, we learn that we are holy brethren. We're holy because Christ has sanctified us, and we're brothers and sisters because Jesus is our older brother. He's brought us into this big, happy family. And we're also partakers of a heavenly calling. We are told then, because of those things, to consider Jesus. We are to consider Jesus, to give heed to him, to pay attention to him to observe him, to look at his life, to learn from him, to study under him, to, to follow him as our teacher and our rabbi. Jesus, the, he's the apostle, 
and these, uh, the high priest of our confession. It's very interesting that here in verse 1 that Jesus is called an apostle. We don't usually think of, when we think of apostle, we, we immediately go to someone like Paul. Jesus is the apostle. He's the ambassador of God. Uh, the word simply means the sent one. He's the sent one from God. But he's not just the sent one from God who is representing to man um, who God is. He's the high priest. This high priest also represents men to God. He does both. So he's the high priest of our confession. We have confessed him. We confess Jesus as his people, and we are told to consider him. But what are we to consider? Moving on. We're told in verse 2 that Jesus was faithful to God. He was faithful to God, and God appointed him to this task. Now the writer, then he draws a parallel, and he's already shown Jesus to be greater than the angels. Now he wants to show that Jesus is greater than, than Moses. That's the, uh, the title of my message tonight, the greater Moses. He is greater than Moses. Jesus was faithful to God in all of his work. And then now there's an analogy, or a, an example, just like Moses was faithful. We'll keep going. Verse 3. For he has been counted worthy, this is um, uh, Jesus, he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So uh, Jesus um, is, count, is counted as having more glory than Moses. Moses didn't have you know, little glory, he had a lot of glory. And the reason for all of this is because the builder of the house, as the argument goes, the builder of the house has more honor than the house. The builder of the house has more honor than the house. The builder is way more impressive than the actual house. So we're, we're supposed to see more honor in the man who, who built the thing rather than seeing honor in the two-by-fours and the drywall and so on. The writer continues in verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Um, an important verse to you to kind of tuck away in your mind is Psalm 127.1. The Lord, unless the Lord builds the house, they, uh, um, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the house. So God builds all things. God structures everything. He builds everything. And, he, and that includes the people who labor in this world that he built. More on that momentarily. In verses 5 and 6, we learn that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but, to prove the point of Jesus being counted you know, worthy of more glory than Moses, Christ was faithful as a son over God's house. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Jesus is a son, faithful in the same way, over God's house. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is the son who is in charge of the house. He has the keys, the deeds in his name, that sort of thing. But the reality is, we are the house, the scripture says, we are the house if, there's a condition, right, if the text says, we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. So he's going to set up this idea of being a covenantal apostate, where you can have all the the tattoos about Jesus you want, but if your heart isn't circumcised, if your heart hasn't been regenerated by God, you're not actually numbered among the elect. You're not actually um, a part of this house. 
And so you pr- we prove that, right? Faith without works is dead. We prove that by the fruit that we produce. Um, but that would be a different sermon. Now, there's a problem here that the writer intends to address. There were Think about the context of who's receiving this letter. Probably a house church not unlike ours. There were Jewish Christians in a hostile envir- environment, mind you. They were tempted to abandon the gospel and, and subsequently embrace a different gospel. The, there was a bona fide temptation, a real, genuine temptation that was there, a struggle in these brothers and sisters' hearts uh, to walk away from Christ, to leave Him, to leave their first love, to, and, and thus take hold of the Jewish tradition built on Moses. Now, many of us were raised in the church. Some, some of you maybe weren't. Um, but not many of us feel the temptation of potentially being ostracized or killed because of our, you know, saying that I follow the way, <laughs> that I'm part of Jesus. There are places in this world where that still happens. Uh, so we don't understand potentially the temptation. Uh, but on the flip side, they had a temptation to leave it all behind, to, to renounce the faith, to walk away and say, you know what, this Jesus cat, not going to go with him. I'm of Moses. And that's an apostasy issue. That is a walking away from the faith. So the writer is saying, don't go back to the shadows of Judaism. We'll have that more later in Hebrews. Don't go back to the blood of bulls and goats. Don't go back to the temple. The temple is going to be destroyed. Don't don't think about going back to that place. That is a done deal. It's over. Jesus is the final sacrifice. So don't go back to the types. Embrace Jesus, the anti-type. Don't don't be impressed with the one worker in the house, as awesome as Moses is. Be impressed with the owner, the architect, the builder. Jewish Christians were tempted to go back to angel worship and asceticism, as well as go back to Moses and the bondage of the ceremonial law, which is essentially what the book of Galatians is about. Don't go back to those, those things. They can't, they can't fix you. So this type of apostasy deserves the strongest of rebukes. Now, to further the warning, uh, and there are many warnings in Hebrews, but to further this warning, the writer then cites Psalm 95 as written by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, so the Old Testament is inspired scripture, the Holy Spirit helped craft that document, right? Um, Peter says the men were carried along. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, that's a quote from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a reminder not to harden your hearts. Don't harden your heart. The context referred to here in our text, and thus Psalm 95, has to do with Israel in the wilderness. All the way back, Old Testament history, Israel in the wilderness. Um, In Numbers 13, you might remember, the spies were sent out, and they went went into the land of Canaan to do some reconnaissance work. They, They needed to check things out. And if you recall, they came back, and they reported to Israel 
right, to Moses and everybody, that taking the land was just not going to happen. It's not in the cards. It, the, the people are too big. We're like grasshoppers. They're all, you know, Goliath size. <laughs> um, the task to even think about doing such a thing is just too hard for us. The sin of unbelief then carried into Numbers 14 as Israel's hearts further hardened. Now, they didn't just whine about that. They complained. They complained to Moses, reminding him, look, we would have been way better off as slaves in Egypt. The food was better. This wilderness stuff is just not working out. Obviously, God's too busy to do what he told you. know, We were supposed to have this land with milk and honey, and we're not getting it. So they just complained and lamented to Moses. Consequently, because of their unbelief, that generation... The generation of that time who complained and whined and so on, they did not enter the promised land. They did not, they were not allowed to go in. Their children and their children's children were allowed through the leadership of Joshua. But they would not enter God's rest. They had hardened their hearts so badly, they did not receive the blessing. So like Israel, who is in the wilderness, on the edge of taking the land of Canaan, but failing to do so because of unbelief, the church then, that's the application, the church then and now was to learn the same lesson. Look at verse 12. So the writer quotes Psalm 95, that, that reminds us of the story of Israel in the wilderness, and then he, then he applies it. Take care, brethren. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance for him until the end. While it is said, and he quotes Psalm 95 again, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they, had been, uh, when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So we are told to take care. To take care, lest our hearts are given to unbelief, lest we fall away from the living God. The person who develops a hard heart doesn't just break covenant, they fall away from the living God. Emphasis on living God. So instead of that, we are told to encourage one another day after today, because today is the day of salvation. We are told to encourage each other so the hardness doesn't happen. Today, in quotes, is always the day that we are responsible as God's people to hear God's voice and turn to Him in faith. The, the, the person whose heart is hard says, well, tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll get to it. I'll, I'll work on it next week. They, they kick the can down the street and their heart continues to harden. We are not to do that. We are to hear His voice today. Now, verse 16 contains a very interesting question. Look at that again. Who, for who provoked him when they had heard? Who were the ones who provoked God with their unbelief? Who were the ones whose hearts were hardened? 
The answer is right in the next line. It's, it's rhetorical in one sense. Who did it? The ones who came out of Egypt who were led by the venerable Moses. Think about that. They complained. The, listen, there are three types of people in this, in this world. Um, there are unbelievers who are outside of the covenant. You have unbelievers inside the covenant. And you have believers inside the covenant. Those are three types of people. Uh, again, I'll say it. Unbelievers who are outside the covenant. Uh, you have unregenerate, non-covenant members. Pagans all get out. Humanists to the core. You have unbelievers who are inside the covenant. They've received the sign of baptism. They've received, you know, for lack of a better argument, you know, they're, they're, they're in the, the church membership roles. They have the gold status, so to speak. Um, they don't have silver. They advance to gold. And they're in, but they don't have a regenerate heart. They're not God's elect. They, their hearts are, are full of envy and so on. And then the third group is uh, believers who are inside the covenant. Regenerate Christians, Holy Spirit-filled Christians. Now the people who provoked God were unbelievers inside the covenant. That's who provoked God in the wilderness. Those who do not possess saving faith as dispensed by the Holy Spirit, and particularly those who grew up in churches and they even attend churches today, are covenant breakers who do not and cannot enter God's rest. We'll talk about this rest issue next week. So let's tease this out a little bit. One of the mistakes that modern Christians often make is thinking that conversion is the goal of salvation. They think that conversion is the goal of salvation. These are the ticket-punching Christians who think that the whole point of the gospel is their own personal salvation. So the atonement is it, and it's about me and my relationship to the bloody Jesus. That, you know, once they sign a card or walk to the front of the church while the Baptist preacher has every eye closed and every head bowed, you know, they're in. They raise their hand. The transaction is over. Um, I call it justification by ticket punch. <laughs> you can come up with, I'm sure, some other funny names. But this is a truncated gospel. It's a truncated version of the gospel. It's very individualistic. It's redu uh, reductionistic. Um, it's, a, it's a truncated version of the good news. Listen, the goal of the gospel is not personal salvation, but the kingdom of God. This is a huge error in our, in our current church climate. The goal of the gospel is not personal salvation, but the kingdom of God. The purpose of your salvation is not merely um, your salvation, your justification. The purpose of salvation also contains your sanctification, the application of the law word of God to every single area of your life. Sanctification is the holiness of Christ put in you by the Spirit, worked out of you by the same Spirit into every nook and cranny of life. I'll say it again. Sanctification. When we think about the doctrine of sanctification, sanctification is the holiness of Christ put in you by the Holy Spirit and worked out of you by the same Spirit into every nook and cranny of life. So... Uh, the Holy Spirit's job is to shove the law of God into your heart so deep that that's what you love. That's what you love now. You, 
you open up Psalm 119 and you join in with David. Oh, how I love your law and I meditate on it day and night. Right? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. By your... That's what the Spirit does. His job is to shove the Scripture so deep into your soul that you're consumed by it. That's what sanctification is. So what we say is all of Christ for all of life. That's the goal of the gospel. We are obligated then, as justified in Christ sinner saints, to apply kingdom principles to everything we touch. Now, one of the ways that this is applied is understanding the house that God is currently building. That's the language of of our text tonight. If you recall from a few weeks ago, the context of the book of Hebrews has to do with the great overlap of the ages. The death and resurrection and ascension of Christ led to the kingdom of God coming to earth as it is in heaven. And that was the start, that was the beginning of, you know, call it 80-30 if you want. That was the start of the new creation project, this new covenant age. The author here is writing to Christians who were living after Christ, the Christ event, but they were, they were living before the end of the old covenant age in A.D. 70. They were the in-between generation. Those who were living in these last days, as Hebrews 1 tells us. So when you read, uh, when you read your Bible, the, the last days referred to in your New Testament has to do with the end of the Judaic Aeon, which happened when the temple was destroyed. So the whole book of Hebrews unpacks this thinking. That's why later he's, the writer is going to talk about blood and, and why blood and atonement is important, that it's in Jesus and not animals, and why Jesus' blood purifies us, sanctifies us um, permanently, clearly, fully, other than you know, the, the, the <clears throat> blood on the altar. So what, why do I bring this up? Well, what, why does this sort of thing even matter? The point, of, the point of the passage is this, so get this. Jesus is the greater Moses because the house that Moses worked in was the house that Christ is building. Jesus is the greater Moses because the house that Moses worked in was the house that Christ is building. So Moses works for, is employed by Jesus. All right? Moses' paychecks come out of Christ's bank account with Christ's signature on the check. That's how this works. The new covenant is simply a renewed covenant with the people of God built on the foundation of the death and resurrection of Christ. Don't miss that. The, the new covenant is simply a renewed covenant with the people of God built on the foundation of the death and resurrection of Christ. All the ceremonial laws and all those things were simply scaffolding on the building. And when Jesus rose in, in that first Easter morning, the scaffolding came down. The building was there, and, and he's continuing to, to grow his building in the world. So don't, don't miss this part. There is continuity between Moses and Jesus, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. Those justified by Christ in the Old Era are the church, just as much as those justified by Christ in the New Covenant Era are the church. The church is simply the people of God, the regenerate people of God. So Old Testament saints are New Testament saints. So when you get to heaven, kids, you get an opportunity, you're going to hang out with King David. And you'll, you'll get to meet Abraham, and you'll, you'll get to ask him 
dude, what was, you might even call him dude, maybe he should be more respectful. Dude, sir dude, uh, God chose you and you were, you were from Ur and he told you to go all this long distance to leave everything behind and how did you do that? What, what an impressive uh, amount of faith you had. Like you'll have an opportunity to meet these saints because Abraham is in the church. David is in the church. Moses is in the church. These are men in the church, in this, in this building. So this is the house, the, the people of God. This is what God is building in the world. This is the old heavens and the old earth passing away, the new heavens and the new earth launching into history. Now, a point of clarification is in order, and I bring this up now because this is why people today reject the law of God as binding today. When people read a text like this, a passage like this, they think that the writer is saying that we ought to reject Moses because Jesus is here. That Moses was fine, and it's like Jesus showed up on the job site and fired him and said, you're gone. <laughs> that's, that's not how this works at all. That's not what he's saying. And that's not at all what Jesus was saying during the Sermon on the Mount either. Jesus' criticism was not of Moses, but of interpretations of Moses. So that's not a small point either. So we are not to reject Moses, but instead realize that to be like Moses is to serve Christ. Moses was a great man, one who, held up, who was held up in the Bible is worthy of our emulation. But know this, when you walk in the door to hang some sheetrock, right, and put some drywall up, you're hanging with Moses and you're using the same hammer. You're, you're mudding the walls the same way. You're working with Moses. You're not to stand there and look at Moses and think, dude, you're amazing. Moses was an incredible man. But don't be impressed with the house. Be impressed with the architect of the house. So we don't worship a great man. We worship the greater man. We serve the builder of the house, not the servant in the house. And don't, make this, and don't mistake the builder for the servant. That's the point here. Don't think that Moses' greatness has to do with himself. Yes, Numbers 12.7 um, describes what is said here in Hebrews 3. Moses was God's servant, and he was faithful in God's house. Moses was a great man. But that doesn't mean we despise Moses. We ought not to venerate him like the Roman Catholics venerate Mary. Nor are we to deride him, though. No, we see Moses in his correct context. He's a servant in the house, just like us. We see him in light of Jesus, the son, over the house. So don't reject Moses. Just see who he, who he really is. No more, no less. Since it is true that Jesus is the son of God over the house, we need to understand what this actually means. House is more than just a bunch of individuals brought together in this abstract collective this people of God taxonomy. House is covenantal language. Don't miss this. House is covenantal language. More specifically, house is new covenant language. Uh, Jeremiah 31.31, and you can go read that passage later if you want to write it down, but Jeremiah 31.31, which is the locus classicus for the Old Testament's prophecy regarding the coming new covenant, says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. So know that. There's language of house and new covenant language together. Also pertinent to this discussion is 2 Samuel 7. You should have that memorized. 2 Samuel 7. 
In that passage, God made a promise to King David that he, God, would build David a house. If you remember the interaction, David wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build this this ginormous temple. And God did tell him that that was going to happen, but his son Solomon was going to do it. David was not going to do it. But the response of God is very intriguing. David wants to build God a house, but God covenants with David instead and says that God is going to do the house building. So listen to 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. I'm going to read it. It says this. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Notice this. I will raise up your descendant after you. David's long dead. He's got a descendant coming who will come forth from you. This descendant is physical DNA relationship to David. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. As a result of this descendant's coming in history, the descendant being Jesus, David's son, Jesus would build a house. That's Hebrews 3. And in concert with this building of the house, God is going to establish Christ's kingdom forever. So follow the train of thought. Don't miss this. This is, this is what's behind all of this text. David, David wants to build a temple, but God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. That's Acts 7, 48 and 17, um, 24. Instead, God will build David a house. The builder of the house will be the son of David, the son of God. And not only will Jesus come and build the house... The house that he's building is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Don't, <laughs> this ties into some other discussion we've had as we've been fellowshipping tonight. Don't conflate this to the local church as if, that, as if the only promise here is that Jesus is going to you know, build the first church of northern Virginia. And, and it's just one little thing here disconnected from all the others. The house is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And this is, this is where modern interpreters fail to see the connection. Not only will Jesus come to build the house, the house that he's building is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. At best, and I, and I've, I looked this up because I was curious, most commentators they pay lip service to this line of thinking, making a passing comment about the Davidic dynasty, and, oh yeah, Jesus is in the line of David. What does that even mean? They don't tell you, because they don't, well, they don't care for whatever reason. So at best, they'll just pay lip service. At worst, they ignore it altogether. What is the house that Jesus is Lord over, the builder of all things, who is God? The answer is so simple, and we miss it. The new creation, the rule and reign of Christ as brought to earth by the vehicle of the new covenant. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his subsequent session in heaven at the right hand of God is this house that he is building. The new creation, that's it, that's the house. The, the rule and reign of Christ is brought to earth through the vehicle of the new covenant. Jesus coming to earth as a man, dying in our place for our sins, rising from the dead, seated on high, ruling and reigning, building a house. That's it. The new covenant, remember, was a renewed covenant. And the gospel we know, and we sing about it because we love this song, goes as far as the curse is found. So the, 
The point of the gospel is the kingdom of God. And the point of the kingdom of God is the renewal of everything. I'll say it again. The point of the gospel is the kingdom of God. We've established that already. And the point of the kingdom of God, why does the kingdom of God come to earth uh, and, and function like it does in heaven, is because it wants to renew everything. The Lord Jesus is, right this very moment, building a house. He's preparing a place for us. But this is not some disconnected cloud heaven space, this divine hotel with all the extra amenities. No, it's material. It's, it's raw. It's the renewal of the periodic table in science. It's solid. It's liquid. It's gas. It's all the stuff of the earth. It's the renewal of people, our bodies, and everything. It's the upstaging of all institutions in this social orders that, that think that they are the sovereign, but they're not. This is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And now, we're getting close to the end here. I want to address this warning here. Moses was a servant in the house, as was Israel. The problem was, they hardened their hearts, right? They got bitter. They thought Egypt had way better you know, scenery, so they didn't like the wilderness. The writer says, very simply... The same thing to you. Don't do this. Don't harden your heart. Israel was on the cusp of taking the promised land, but that generation would rather have been in Egypt. Same principle. The church of Jesus Christ is on the cusp of taking the entire world. That's what we've been told to do. That's, that's the Great Commission. So don't make the same mistake during this process. Salvation is about dominion, not escapism. All right, kids, I wanna, you're going to hear this a million times. Salvation is about dominion in your life and in this world, not about escapism, not about leaving it. Salvation actually deals with your problems. It doesn't try to get you out of them. And that's why when, when you're fighting cancer, or that's why when you're, you're in the darkest moments of your life, you can rely on Jesus because his... He's not trying to get you out of it. He's in there holding you in the storm. That's a huge, huge difference. So in other words, don't, don't dither in your own self-pity, thinking that the report of the spies ought to leave you battled, baffled. Consider Jesus. And this, is, this is what we have right now in our nation. Many Christians who are that by name only are hard-hearted toward the prospect of laboring in Christ's house. The edifice that's being constructed on the back of the Enlightenment right now in our culture and other secularist theories, they, it seems way too big of a problem. We're butchering children and we can't fix it. And it seems like this impossible task, this, this Tower of Babel 2.0 is immense, this immense monstrosity, and we don't know what to do. Now I get it, I really do. We look at the Leviathan state and think, well this will never change. We're just going to keep racking up trillions of dollars in debt. We're just going to keep bombing countries instead of sending missionaries. We're just we're going to perpetuate this growing, um, bloated, federalized government. So we look at that and think, well, this we can do nothing. And then we consider the whoredom of the church and think, well, this will never change. She's too busy cozying up to you know other lovers. So what do, we do, what do we do about this? Here's what you do. You don't let your heart get hardened. Amen. 
You don't get so worked up about what's happening around you that your heart gets hardened and you forget all that Christ has done. The Israelites had apparently forgotten that they were rescued from slavery by the mighty hand of God, as if a bunch of frogs leaping around wouldn't give you a clue that your God is stronger than the Egyptian gods, as if the Nile River turning to blood would lead you to think that God was somehow not in control, as if one could witness the crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground and the subsequent drowning of the entire Egyptian army in the very same sea that you just walked on, As if you could walk away from all of that, this outstanding display of the sovereignty of God, and conclude with uncertainty that God maybe really isn't all that powerful. Fast forward to us, and what do modern churches do today? We act like Jesus is still in the tomb. We expect defeat. And guess what? That's why we're getting it. And listen, no one is going to take the land with a heart full of unbelief. You, you don't do that. It's impossible. No one takes the land with a heart full of unbelief. And that's why we're getting railroaded right now. And we have this ramshackle, put-together public square where no one knows which way is up, which bathroom is appropriate. And most Christians are quite content with letting it continue this way. This particularly rival house is full of, of ill repute, full of tax-sucking status, and we think we're fine. It's fine. It's no big deal. We, th- we, we think that this is probably how God wants it anyway, right? Isn't God sovereign? I mean, he wouldn't let something happen that he didn't want. And Not only is it fine, well, well maybe, maybe we'll just throw some paint on the wall. You know, another pro-life Republican who promises to try to get the 20-week ban on the docket. Maybe that'll fix the house. Nonsense. This isn't fine, and it isn't how things are supposed to go. Look, the problem in this text is very, very simple. It's the same problem going on today. That's why it's so easy to apply this text. Like the Israelites, we think that the chief end of God is to glorify man. The, de- the demand of Israel, ultimately here, and in, in the reason their hearts were hardened was because they wanted and demanded God to serve them. Today's evangelicals insist on developing pragmatic ways for God to serve them. The reason we are told to consider Jesus is because our faith is a God-centered faith. It doesn't say in this text, in verse 1, it doesn't say, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider your profession of faith. Or consider the problems of the world. Israel in the wilderness thought that the goal of God was their comfort and pleasure and their desires. This self-centeredness is what started as the seed in their heart, and it blossomed into this full-blown dead tree of unforgiveness. The goal of the gospel of the kingdom and the goal of your life, dear Christian, who lives in this house, who is working in this house, is this kingdom. Sanctification has to be just more than this pietistic, morbid introspection. It's about our calling, our work in God's house. So don't despise the house. Don't neglect the house. Consider Jesus the builder of the house. Each of you tonight, kids, listen, I'm almost done, I promise. Each of you tonight, you have a purpose in this house, this kingdom of God. We are not the builder of a house, this house. We are servants of the house, like Moses. Jesus is the builder. So we're not calling the shots. 
We're the ones who are supposed to be laboring in this giant building we call the kingdom of God. So you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to, you're supposed to pick up your tools and get to work. You're supposed to, to serve God in his kingdom in a way that he's uniquely gifted you. And, and the church and all our individuals, we're instruments in this house. We're not the end game. We're not the center of our faith. We are not the center of the kingdom. We are not the point. The gospel doesn't exist to inflate your already too inflated ego. And the minute that you think that you're the point is the minute you start to muddle things up. The minute any of us, any of us think that we can posture ourselves in such a way that people will think much of us. Right? Like... That's what we want. Think much of cross and crown. Aren't they amazing? That's not what we want. We want people to think much of Jesus. And the moment we start thinking something else is when this whole thing falls apart. So we are servants. We are not the builder. The builder is Jesus. So children, you have to consider him. Adults, you have to consider him. Consider Jesus every single day. Christianity isn't about you. And God doesn't... God doesn't exist to serve our wishes. We exist to serve Him. So the Enlightenment way back then and in the, in the, in the secular humanism of today are all rival institutions. They borrow our capital, they build their own kingdom, they slap a new logo on it, and they think that they're winning. They're taking our tools, they're taking our lumber, they're taking our paint. And instead of working in God's house, building things God's way with God's tools that belong to us, laboring for Christ on his terms, we think we're in exile. We think victory is impossible. We think the spies are right. We can't do it. So we sin just like Israel. And listen, if you get anything from this message tonight, get this. The church is not in exile. The church is on the precipice of dominion. The church is not in exile. The church is on the precipice of dominion. And until we get this straight we are going to inevitably find ourselves on the losing end in this generation, an inexorable movement towards irrelevance. So Israel was saved. Why? Why did God bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt? Why has God saved you? Why in the world would God do such a thing? You ever thought about it? Why would God save me? And the answer is simple, to serve the greater Moses. Christ is the foundation. We are his. We are his servants laboring in his house. So our life must be, as Calvin has taught us, this endeavor to fulfill this calling. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, we magnify your Son's name this evening. We give ourselves wholly unto you. We agree with the Apostle Paul who said in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We see our lives as a libation offering, a drink poured out on the altar in service of you. We long to see every aspect of creation brought underneath the feet of Jesus, so we ask that you would crush our enemies and defeat them soundly like the prophets of Baal were defeated through your servant Elijah. Grant us peace and pardon, Lord as we live on mission this week for your name's sake. It's in Christ's name I pray.